0: It's Bad History! Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bad History. Bad History! My name is Steven, and I am joined this week like every single other week with my friend, esteemed colleague, and tepid love from that summer in France in 1969, Dave. Hey Steven. Hey Dave. (laughs) Uh, So this is episode number 33 This week we are going to be talking about, well, a topic that's kind of evolved, I would say, in the last two weeks since we suggested doing it. Uh, Initially it was going to be about lesser known groups of people, so the examples that uh, I gave were polygamists or the Romani, and it's kind of changed a bit since then. Not even really, though. Yeah, well, no, it's, 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 kind of, it's gotten more narrowed, I would say. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about two lesser-known military organizations. Uh, so, it's still, I, th- I would say, it, we're, it, in a technicality, we're right. Alright, so, uh, before we jump into history, Dave, how has your last few weeks been, man? I feel like it's been a while since we've talked. Uh, it's been a ride. I've just been,
1: you know, doing my thing. And, uh, haven't had time for any movies or video games or books or anything. Don't sound anything. too excited
0: with that yawn there, dude. <laughs> yeah, um, or sleep.
1: So, <laughs> yeah, I've just been chugging along. How about you, Steven? How are the kiddies? Uh,
0: the kids are great. Uh, I have them every other weekend now because their mother is, uh, deciding to take me to court again. So you just uh, taking
1: them to putt-putt? Oh, you mean my students?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah yes, yes, yes. Uh, no, uh, it's, it's a dark t- joke. Yeah, it is. Uh, t- teaching, teaching has been has been good. Kind of in the same boat. Just keep trudging along a little bit, and uh, you know, you know, catching, trying to catch up on my z's when I can. I'm yeah. actually in a very interesting recording setup right now. Uh, I'm back home in Charleston for the weekend, and in an effort to find a good place to record, I found myself outside recording, so you may hear some birds chirping, some uh, dogs barking, some neighbors yelling at each other. Uh, you know, the usual. The usual. Yeah, but I saw a hummingbird earlier, so that was cool. That's cool. So in case
1: uh, we just stop and you have to like squee or let out a noise. Yep. Because there's some nature coming at you. Yeah. Cause, because because
0: yep. I saw I saw a cute animal.
1: You saw a cute animal or a bug or a <laughs> cactus or something.
0: A cactus?
1: Yeah. You know sometimes cactuses come at you, man.
0: They're like uh they're like what is a sea anemone? They like move, but like not when you're looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're always closer than you think. Yep. All right. Did, so you sh- ever
1: stepped on a cactus? No. Baldy Beach is covered in cactus, cacti. Oh, and they s- are. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Fucking, I fucking uh, played Frisbee one time on the beach and fell into a bed of cactus. It was not fun. Mm. I can imagine. Do what it. Imagine it.
0: it. I mean, I'm doing stupid. it right now. Fuck this. <laughs> yeah, this is a dumb joke. <laughs> let's like, Should this. we. should? should <laughs> that we, uh, really happened, though. That was awful. Should we jump into the history, then? Jump into the history, Steve. Let's do it. Yeah. Why not? Play that music. Let's play that music bop a doo
1: doo Steven Yeah Yeah, esteemed teacher of a European history <laughs> something like that. Would you like to hear the story of the Navajo wind talkers? Uh, I guess so. Okay. Well, you don't have a fucking choice. Ah, see, there we go. So, okay. A little background on the Navajo people. You may know a little bit if you're from the United States. You probably don't because uh as you know, our public education doesn't really care that much about Native Americans. So, I'll give yeah. some background information. The
0: first. irony is really thick in that one. It's really like a like a very thick, thick. soup.
1: A thick <laughs> chowder almost. <laughs> Chow, <laughs> It's chowder. <laughs> so the Navajo are a Native American ethno-linguistic group from the southwestern United States. Uh, I guess speaking modernly a bit anachronistic, right? Because they mm. aren't from the southwestern United States no. of America. No, no. <laughs> um As of 2015, the Navajo Nation is the second largest federally recognized tribe in the United States behind the Cherokee. They have approximately 300,000 currently enrolled tribal members, and they are mostly located in Arizona and New Mexico, uh, but they also live in the Four Corners area and in Utah and stuff like that. Um, The Navajo have an extensive cultural relationship with the Puebloan peoples and have many shared cultural and linguistic traditions with them. If you have that kind of background... uh, Originally, they were small crop farmers. Oh my
0: god, Stephen. What yeah, the f- how them cicadas treating you? Yeah. Oh my god.
1: Uh, originally, they were small f- crop farmers, um, and the Navajo became sheep and goat hoarders. Hoarders? <laughs> hoarders? <laughs> uh, originally small crop farmers, the Navajo became sheep and goat herders after coming into contact with the Spanish... Uh, and this led to a diet strongly consisting of meat, but maybe more importantly, this leads to the tradition of Navajo weaving in blankets, which are, uh, even modernly highly valued for their artistic quality. If you know something about the Navajo, it's probably that they make some dope-ass blankets, and that's, like, a true art form that they have. Um... The Navajo and the United States have a sort of rough history. <laughs> uh just like, like, like m- most Native American groups. Like in the most Native
0: American groups. Um, something about the Trail of Tears or something like that.
1: Yeah, and this really begins during the Mexican-American War. If you're familiar, that's the war in which we beat Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So the U.S. invaded Navajo land in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and they negotiated a peace treaty. I'm making finger quotes right now Mm in the year 1846. Not everybody cared or upheld this peace treaty, so Navajo raids on New Mexican villages were really common, as were New Mexicans raiding Navajo settlements, stealing livestock uh, but the New Mexicans also stole women and children for sale as slaves, um, which is like still going on at this time. Uh, dur- during the early 1860s, uh, these raids increased in intensity due to failing peace talks. Um, actually, in 1860 and 1861, uh, this time was known as Nahonzud, or the Fearing Time, because tensions were so high and there was so much fighting between the New Mexicans and the Navajo. So, as a response, in 1861, Brigadier General James H. Carleton led a series of military campaigns against the Navajo. Uh, he was joined by Colonel Kit Carson and the New Mexican Militia. Uh, and conducted a scorched earth campaign against the Navajos. Oh, that's good. Now, Stephen, for those who don't know, because it is your favorite thing, mm-hmm. what is scorched earth? <laughs> what Why is, is that my favorite thing? Because you love fucking scorched earth, dude. That's all you ever talk about. Is it? I call you up on the weekend. I'm like, hey, man, did you see Kubo and the Two Strings? And you're like, oh, I fucking scorched that earth, dude. <laughs> yeah,
0: that is my. That is kind of like one of my catchphrases, isn't it? So when you you buy the Stephen doll at Target and you got the pole string, that's one of my many catchphrases. It just says
1: "Medieval scorched earth," and that's all it says. So So what is
0: scorched earth? Is the policy little? Yeah, yeah. So scorched earth is the policy of when when you're Russia and you're massively retreating into your country because that's kind of what you do when you're being invaded. You burn everything that you come in contact with in your own country. I E villages crops everything like that so when the people come in and follow your trail they're walking into pretty much nothing so that's
1: a defensive scorched
0: right the <laughs> Sh- sherman did something similar when he burn the south and the south is still kind of bitter about that it's actually extremely touchy subject oh my god
1: isn't sherman the most badass though
0: yeah people hate sherman down here oh my god he's the most badass people like really hate sherman down here. dude i'm
1: from the south and i love sherman
0: yeah i got like i got like this this guy who uh who came into my work uh not not teaching different job and he we were talking about sherman and he like he had it. He was like, it was like he had, like, killed his family. Like, like that's he how was it, there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like Sherman had spit in his soup one Yeah. Day. <laughs> anyway, so, um, Scorched Earth campaign against the Navajos, uh, and they ended up being starved out, which really sucks. Uh, the Navajos surrendered in July of 1863, and they were rounded up for internment at Fort Defiance, which is a ironic name (laughs) and this begins a really 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 sad part of navajo history called the long walk and based on that name alone and knowing anything about native american history you can guess as to what the long walk entails yep so from the spring of 1864 to the end of 1866 53 separate forced marches from their homeland to fort sumner uh, were organized by the United States government. So they uh, just forced all the Navajo, essentially, to go to a place and to get there, however. Um, but it was 300 miles away, uh, on average, from where they, uh, their homelands were. So this was to relocate the Navajo to a new territory known as the Bosque Redondo, which is Spanish for round forest. The trek was difficult, and it was through the desert, of the american west and the navajo were not protected or given shelter or often or offered um food or water on this trip and it took about 20 days at like a decently brisk pace because that's Mm -hmm. yeah that's like you know fucking (laughs) 300 miles yeah Uh, hundreds died uh on the walk but also uh they were attacked by rival tribes, uh, and many were taken and sold uh, as slaves or just taken by enemy tribes for Jesus. whatever, right? So this was not a fun run. <laughs> and then once at the Bosque Redondo, the Navajo were actually forced to live with their rival their rival tribe, the Mescaleros, Um who they had a large tradition of raiding against. Now, raiding for Native uh, Americans, it's really hard to contextualize in a modern sense because it is, like, technically warfare, but it's also seen as, like, not quite a game by any means, but, like, uh, it's just, like, a cultural thing that you do, and it's, like, you expect to get raided, because you know you're going to raid back. Do you know what right. I mean? No, I know what you mean. I, see, I, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, like, this, they're, they're enemies, obviously, and they raid each other. But, like, they're not going to ever stop because raiding is, like, life. You yeah, know? it's part of life. It's part of life. It's very much like, um, you could say, the Mongolians or Arabians or the Kalasar, if you're into that. The yeah,
0: Viltrak- I mean... <laughs> oh, nice. Well, like, any nomadic sort of group. Any nomadic warfare group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, raiding, raid is life. Uh, right. Pretty much. Got that tattooed on my chest.
1: Got that tattoo. Um, so, <laughs> they were forced to live with their rival tribe, the Mescaleros. And they did not get along, Obviously. Um, so the Bosque Redondo was set up as this experimental reservation but it totally failed due to lack of funding, due to lack of resources Um, inadequate water and food led to crop failures and famine the only true water source that they had was actually brackish due to flooding (laughs) so they didn't really have a reliable fresh water source also these tribes hated each other so there's lots of tension there and then in 1868 it was abandoned only after about four years because of how big a failure it was so that's the Navajo's sort of background (laughs) with the United States Um, let me I'm going to talk now about the military tradition that sort of led to the Navajo Wind Talkers forming. So, the U.S. military maintained many forts on the Navajo reservation during the time before and after relocation. Many Navajos were actually employed as military personnel, known as Indian Scouts, to serve as civilian police. These police served as an anti- raiding task force to maintain the peace established in the Navajo Treaty, which was tenuous at best. Um, But due to forced Americanization and secondary education introduced in the American Indian boarding schools, uh, Navajos very commonly worked with the military. They also had a very strong uh, warrior sort of culture. So the military was just like a great option, not a great option, but maybe an obvious option for a lot of the Navajo. Sure. Side note, on the boarding schools that I mentioned, they were awful. <laughs> they forced assimilation and Christianity on the Native Americans. And there's, like, so many resources today about how these American Indian boarding schools were, like, almost genocidal.
0: they were american
1: culture. Yeah, yeah.
0: There's some, like, there's some crazy pictures of, like, kids before and after.
1: Yeah, they're, like, bleached almost. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um. So that's how the Navajo sort of uh, got a foot in the U.S. military door. Now, the Navajo Windtalkers, you might have heard about these guys before, but I'm going to give you the lowdown, because it's pretty fucking cool. So when the United States became involved in WW2, as some people call it, many Navajo had integrated into the urban settings of the United States to work in factories, but also... Uh, Right as the war began, many Navajo men volunteered for military service. Like I said before, warrior culture was a big deal still in Navajo culture. They liked to raid, they liked to fight, but, you know, so, military. Uh, (laughs) While many Navajos, like, fought on the ground alongside other soldiers in integrated units, the most famous role that the Navajo played during World War II was that of code talkers so code is a big deal in world war ii we have radio now and radio interception so everything needs to be encrypted this is the time of course of the enigma machine and people like alan turing Uh, a civil engineer for los angeles named philip johnston proposed the navajo for the u.s marine corps as a code language. So Johnston um, was raised on a Navajo reservation as the son of a missionary, and he was one of the few non-Navajo who spoke the language fluently. Uh, the United States utilized the Navajo language as a code for the Marine Corps. It was extremely complex. It had syntax and tonal qualities that made it incredibly hard to learn. At the time of World War II, it is estimated that fewer than 30 non-navajo could even understand the language wow so uh john there's this famous story where johnston uh brought in um some navajo guys uh to the pacific fleet to demonstrate how well they could use the navajo language as a code so, during these stage tests with the Pacific Fleet, Johnston demonstrated that Navajo men could encode, transmit, and decode a three line English message in 20 seconds. So, two guys in opposite rooms uh, with the radio get sent a message in the code, and they have 20 seconds to decode it and then send it back, right? So, they did it in 20 seconds, but top-of-the-line code-breaking machines at the time were only required to do this in 30 minutes. So they were fucking fast. Yeah. The United States military worked with the Navajo Code Talkers to create a complex code reflecting the military standard of the Joint Army-Navy Phonetic Alphabet that you might be familiar with. So you've got A is for Alpha, B is Mm -hmm. Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, Foxtrot, and so forth. The Navajo Code Talkers were known for their skill and accuracy throughout the war with this new code that they created. For example, at Iwo Jima, Major Howard Connor of the 5th Marine Division had six Code Talkers working around the clock for the first two days of the battle. These six Navajo Wind Talkers transmitted and decoded over 800 messages without making a single error. Wow. Wow. Major Connor went on to say, were it not for the Navajos, the Marines would never have taken Iwo Jima. Which is a big fucking deal. (laughs) Yeah, it's huge. Uh, The codes were constantly updated, and code talkers in the Pacific constantly met at conferences to discuss ways to make the code more diverse, yet standardized. The Navajo code talkers continued this effort throughout the war, through the Korean War, and then finally Navajo code talkers were kind of abandoned during the Vietnam War because we had more sophisticated um, encryption and technology, right? Mm -hmm. That being said, to this day, the Navajo code is the only spoken military code to have never been deciphered. Wow. Wow. In all of history, it was that complex. That's crazy. Um, Yeah. So it was really fucking intense. And actually, the last of the original Code Talkers who developed the code, his name was Chester Nez. He died on June 4th, 2014. Holy cow. Yeah, he was around (laughs) for a while. And he was one of the original developers of the Navajo Code. Jeez. Uh, that is the story of the wind talkers totally totally necessary and important during world war ii and beyond for their language skills and their ability to code and decode they were also great soldiers i'm sure um but as you all know if you're world war ii people uh codes and breaking codes and jamming codes and deciphering was like an espionage element of world war ii that was super unique and super busy and we had all kinds of people working on codes and code breakers and you know the story of the enigma machine i'm sure where that's yeah. pretty much how we beat nazi germany is because we could decipher right. their shit uh as a little treat maybe <laughs> for you i would like to demonstrate a little bit of the navajo code talk if that's oh, sure. okay yeah, hopefully, go for I I let's see what you oh, got. Hopefully I don't butcher this, and somebody who's Navajo listening is like, he said what about my mother? Yeah. <laughs> <So, laughs> Steven. Yep. Klizi niasha niasha be, be moasi ga niasha And that means good scroll. <laughs> man.
0: <laughs> man, that's a lot of syllables, huh?
1: <laughs> yes, well, it is it is the phonetic breakdown. So I I could have said good Golf, Oregon, Oregon, Delta, or whatever. Right, right, right. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Is it Oregon? Ohio? Ohio? Golf, Ohio. Ohio? I don't know. I don't know that shit. Not only there. That's okay. uh, I remember a side... This is just like a little anecdote. You don't even have to keep this in. But we had a a teacher in high school who... We did like multiple choice questions. And... He was a big military guy, so he'd be like A, B, C, or D, and you'd say the answer, and he'd be like, "Bravo, that's correct." And like oh sometimes, God. I would, yeah, I, I would come up with words that weren't those words, and he'd be like, "Dave, what's the answer number six, And I'd be like, uh, "That'll be Beetlejuice B, sir," <laughs> <laughs> and he'd be like, "Beetlejuice B, that's right." <laughs> so anyway, that is the story of the Navajo Wind Talkers. Um, super big super important thank you dude uh if you want to know more there's a lot of shit on these guys i might also want to direct you if i'm feeling like it to the 2002 film (laughs) starring um the one true god nicholas cage (laughs) called uh wind talkers um which is about soldiers who are assigned to protect the Navajo um, during that shit. So, that movie isn't great, but it's fun. <laughs> and Nicolas Cage is in it. So, go check it out. Uh, anyway, if that's all, I say we move on, Stephen. How about we? We? we play the music?
0: Let's play that music. do 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 Do-do-do-do-do-do.
1: <laughs>
0: all right Dave so uh today I want to talk about an, an underrepresented group in history uh, but it's gonna we're gonna take it back a little bit we're gonna we're gonna yeah, wind it back a little. Take bit. Take me back. Uh, so, I want to take things all the way back to the Middle Ages. Yes, Dave, the Middle Ages.
1: I mean, was anybody surprised?
0: No, I, I suppose not. I guess not. Uh, I hadn't. I haven't done. I've been good though. I've been good. I haven't done a Middle Ages topic in like forever. When's the last Fli- time I did one? Fli- like, Fli- episode 5, I think? Probably. Episode
1: 5? More like episode 5 seconds ago, you motherfucker.
0: Oh, you got me good, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm feisty. You're feisty today. What's going on? Feist.
1: I'm full of feist, Steven.
0: <laughs> this is getting derailed pretty quickly. What the fuck does feisty even mean? <laughs> Spunky. I guess. Uh, So everybody knows about the Knights Templar. They were the group of fighting monks who, most famous for their role in the crusades, and so after the siege of Jerusalem, the Knights Templar was created to defend the city and those wishing to travel, they traveled to Jerusalem uh, because when the Crusaders went into Jerusalem they literally slaughtered every single person in the city including the women and the children and then nice. after after they killed everybody in the city and there was blood reportedly up to their knees they said, "Oh crap there's only men in the city now and so they had to send for their wives and kids and women uh, from Europe to Jerusalem so the, the my Templar was there to help. Protect them from raids from the uh, from uh, bandits and from Muslims living in the area. Those damn bandit Muslims, <laughs> damn ba- bandit Muslims. Uh, however, the Night Templars only last for a few hundred years before being destroyed by the very thing that the, that created them, the Catholic Church, uh, as the Catholic Church tends to like to do. Uh, yeah. However, no one ever really talks about their rivals, and I use heavy air quotes here because they're not really their rivals, but they're just kind of like created alongside with the Templars. And yeah. I am talking about the Knights Hospitallers. <laughs> Those hospitable so knights. Hospitable knights, man. And so the hospital Hospitallers lasted way longer than the Knights Templars. In fact, they're still kicking around today. Nice. Yeah. So the Hospitallers were created for virtually the exact same reason that the Templars were, to have a dedicated fighting order of monks who could defend the Holy Land, because, of course, you need a dedicated fighting order of monks. Uh, so the Hospitallers got their name because they actually started out as a hospital run by monks in Jerusalem. And eventually they set up hospital, hospitals and hostels all along the roads leading to Jerusalem from Constantinople. And by 1113, they were officially recognized as a religious order. Nice. And so as they're setting up these hospitals and hostels, the monks themselves are there to, to defend the people who are coming to, on their way to Jerusalem or to Acre or to you know any of the holy lands, the holy cities. Um, <clears throat> so after the fall of Jerusalem and, uh, and eventually the rest of the Crusader states, the hospitalers move back to mainland Europe. But I don't want to talk about the Crusades here. But I don't want to talk about the Crusades. I want to talk about the years that followed and one of the most famous and most important sieges in European history, the Siege of Malta. Oh,
1: I was not expecting that.
0: Oh, I bet you weren't. What were you expecting? The Spanish Inquisition? (laughs) No, I never, I never expected that. Good. Uh... So in 1530, Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, who's also Charles I of Spain, because, you know, like, screw any sort of, like... He just had a bunch of shit. Yeah, he had a bunch of stuff going on, man. Uh, So he gifts the island of Malta to the Hospitallers. Because they have been really without a home for a number of years. And Charles V saw some advantage in getting a religious order of fighting monks on his side. Plus, Charles V is deeply Catholic, and for the most part of his reign, he's trying to mend things with the Protestants and the Catholics, because he was tasked with having to decide what the heck goes on in the Holy Roman Empire during the Reformation, because that's where the majority of the Reformation actually took place, and he's deeply Catholic, and he's got to contend with the fact that a lot of his population is Protestant now, and that's a whole another story for a different time. But he sees some advantage and. Uh, kind of making amends with the Catholic Church and getting this order of monks on his side. Actually, weirdly enough, the uh, the only requirement for having the, uh, being gifted the island of Malta is they, uh, the hospitalers had to give, had to make uh, they had to give a falcon to the Prince of Tripoli every year. <laughs> Had to go catch one like I like don't know. It met? was like like hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I got this right because like, hey hey stop it over there. Here's some squirrels going off. Um. Oh no no I'm sorry not AAA. Uh. So, the only fee that they had to pay was a single Maltese Falcon which they oh had to send God, to the, the king's representative. They descended to the king's re- representative, the viceroy in Sicily. That was, like, what they had to do. That was their, like, uh, one requirement.
1: Now, let me ask you something. Yeah. After they've had this island for, let's say, 10, 15 years, this guy's got 10 to 15 falcons that he's oh, just just Jay chilling. What is he doing with all these falcons?
0: Uh, Your guess is as good as mine there, Dave.
1: Is he just, like... Does he let them go? Does, does he like control
0: them? Um my guess is he's probably just got like a giant like uh, bird birdcage full of falcons. How many falcons is too many falcons? I think
1: that's too many falcons. I think any more than one is too I many I would argue that one
0: falcon is too many falcons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, continue. moving on. Moving on. Uh so So the Hospitallers at this point become known as the Knights of Malta, which makes sense because they are like the defending force of the island of Malta. But Malta itself was a key position in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, The island of Malta Malta is located just off the coast of Sicily, so pretty much right smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean. And it would be a key position for anyone who wanted to, oh, I don't know, have control over the Mediterranean and take away... Power from the Europeans, like uh, I don't know, maybe the Ottomans. Uh, Well, this is exactly the case. Uh, So the Ottomans had been pushing up against the Habsburgs' landholdings in Europe for years and years, trying to gain a stronghold over the Mediterranean. Knowing that a massive Ottoman attack was imminent, the Grand Master of the Knights Juan de Homedes decided to turn Malta into a fortress. He heavily fortified a previous fort on the island and, in six months, built two more forts, which is extremely quick. Over the next few years, no massive fighting ensues, but after Philip II's forces are crushed at the Battle of Jirba, Jean de Valais, the Grand Master of the the, uh, Hospitallers at the time, orders all of the Hospitallers in Europe to return to Malta to prepare for battle. But the Turks kind of really screw up here. Uh, By the way, before I continue... Does Turks sound like a derogatory ter- term to you? Because every time I hear it and read it or, like, say it, it feels like a derogatory term. I don't know why. <laughs> I think that's only
1: because you have, like, a Western standpoint. So, like, whenever you normally read the word Turks, it's, like, the enemy. Right. But, like, yeah, yeah, no, sure. No, 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 no. It's like the word Jews.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I know I know. it's not because, like, I. it's written in, like, the... Like the the like the AP Euro textbook and like all these other, it's just weird. I don't know. It's weird to me. Anyway, uh, okay. However, the Turks really screw up here and they don't attack for another five years. Uh, and if they attacked right away, they probably would have been able to crush most of Philip II's forces, who is the King of Spain at this point. If I hadn't mentioned it, uh, but he he they, the Turks hold off for five years. Philip II's able to completely rebuild his fleet. And the hospitalers are able to prepare themselves for invasion. Um, In 1565, news that a Turkish fleet had set sail for Constantinople reached the island of Malta. And they were on their way to sack the island. The Europeans were massively outnumbered in Malta. They had 9,000 compared to 48,000 Turks. Who... Then the, and the Ottomans at this point are led by the famous Solomon the Magnificent.
1: That hat, though.
0: Full of, of kid skulls. Oh, man. Uh, now, Solomon the Magnificent kind of makes a crucial error here again. And the force that he, he sends to uh, Malta, instead of putting it in the command of one person, he puts it in the command of three people. And so that goes just about as well as you'd expect it to. Uh, From almost instantly, there's a lot of infighting and bickering between the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman forces. But so that that kind of leads to what happens next. So to prepare for the siege, Valet orders all crops to be harvested uh, on the island and all the wells near where the Ottomans were most likely to land poisoned with dead animals. Nice. super metal. So the Fort of St. Elmo was the first fort to fall to the Turks. Uh, Over the course of several days, it was bombarded by the Turkish artillery until it just couldn't hold out any longer. And Dave L.A. is pretty much he's 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 doing everything he can to keep this fort from going under to the Turks because he knows he can hold, if he can hold them off from taking the fort, he can keep them at bay because he's waiting on reinforcements from Sicily, which actually take a decent amount of time to come. So eventually the, the fort does fall, and at this point it's just pretty much a pile of rubble because it's being hit by alt- artillery so much. Um, but really, this would prove to be the only true success of the siege for the Turks. They fail to gain much more ground, and the ground that they do gain is hotly contested by the Hospitallers. And the other knights defending the island. In fact, there's only there's one wet record that says that after the Turks had broken through the city wa- city walls in Berjoux, Devalay, the seventy year old grandmaster, led the charge against the Turks, staying in the most dangerous positions of the battle until more reinforcements could arrive. Fuck so yeah. this guy is he's not only is he an incredible leader, incredibly smart, but he's like incredibly brave and he's doing Everything he can to uh, to hold off the Turkish advances, which shows the real true advantage that the uh, the Hospitallers have over the Ottomans, and it's the fact that the Hospitallers are much more unified, and they have a lot more confidence, and they're you know they're 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 under better leadership, um, whereas the the Turks are at this point really getting cold feet they don't want to be there it's in the middle of the summer in the middle of the mediterranean <laughs> so it's hot and it's you know it's just no good for anybody and that's like really the true advantage that they have is that they are they have the confidence and they have the will to keep fighting whereas the ottomans either being led by three people who don't really like each other that much and there's constant infighting and it's just no good for anybody so after four months of siege the Turks retreat when reinforcements arrive from the Europeans. So all in all, the small army of 9,000 was able to hold off the siege of an army over five times the size of it. Fuck yes. And reportedly over 130,000 cannonballs were fired onto the island of Malta in four months. So Dave Allais and the rest of the hospitalers went down in history as leading the defense of the island, which is hugely important because not only did it give the rest of, uh, of the Spanish and the rest of, uh, Philip II's troops, the will to kind of keep fighting and eventually really neuter the Ottoman threat later on. But it was also just hugely important, uh, for just the general defense of, uh, of Malta and then Sicily and then Italy and like, you know, kind kind of spiraling out from there.
1: What is up with uh, the Turks in not being able
0: to seal the deal with these sieges, dude? I don't know, man. It's it's. Uh, I mean, it's a common theme throughout all of history where it's just like, if they had chased them, if they had only chased them, because the same thing happens with Napoleon, and he could have taken Moscow, but he holds off for a while and then decides to take it like in the middle of winter. But you know, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but yeah, they don't seal the deal. So as time went on, the hospitalers moved away from warfare and more towards administration and actually actual hospital work. So they kind of move away from the fighting monks more towards just being a religious order. And they remained in Malta until 1798 when Napoleon decides to just kind of sack it on his way to Egypt because why not? And they relocate permanently to Rome where they are still in operation today. And that is my story of the Hospitalers.
1: Well, as the homies say, uh,
0: Stephen.
1: So, uh,
0: Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Little did you know, Dave, I actually speak fluent Navajo. No, you don't. Nope, I don't.
1: Stephen, you don't even speak fluent fucking English.
0: <laughs> nope, I don't. <laughs> I so thought it was a good scroll, dude. Thanks, man. I appreciate
1: it. So the hospitalers, they're uh,
0: doctors and nurses now, I guess. Uh, yeah, so, so I mean, it's it's pretty much a... Uh, I mean, I think more so now it's like uh, it's a traditional kind of thing where I don't know the kind of work that they're doing. I, I imagine it is in that kind of vein of helping people and being more sort of like caregiver caregivers but you have to be um you have to be part of you have to be like roman catholic to join them and you have to be italian i think as well Um Aww. yeah so it's an exclusive club uh you join you get a members only jacket and you, <laughs> yeah. but Gotta they're that, yeah that,
1: uh planet hollywood one right yeah God cafe
0: <laughs> reverse reversible yeah dude yeah, but man, that was that was that was good stories, man. That was that was good scrolls all around. I, I uh, that was a you know I learned a lot actually uh, doing this one. Not only about the hospitalers, but I was in the in the process of looking up these small uh, these these groups of people. I ended up stumbling upon a lot of stuff that was I was thinking about using that I ended up not using that I had didn't know before. So it was cool. Well, right on, dude. This yeah, was a good one. Yeah, yeah, it was. So for. Uh, the next episode, which will be in out in two weeks, what uh, what are we thinking, Dave?
1: I think we should talk about books or literature in general, um, non f- or fiction. Sorry, fiction that set landmark precedents for something. It could be anything. You could talk okay. about like starting wars or starting movements or starting political ideas sort of you know uh atlas shruggedy or uh, except i just said atlas shrugged so we can't use atlas shrugged no
0: no atlas shrugged uh let's also i like this idea a lot because i think it's way different than anything we've done before so i'm a huge fan let Um, me throw some caveats on that yeah i was i was gonna say
1: okay so ha 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 no
0: religious texts count as fiction oh yeah yeah no no one's that uh neither one of us is that like you know that Yeah. that euphoric yeah, <laughs> uh so none of that bullshit
1: none of that haha i worked at barnes and noble and put the bible in the fantasy section bullshit yeah um no uncle tom's cabin i was gonna say that was that was gonna be no. a, my one caveat as well that's too no obvious at,
0: no atlas shrugged no atlas shrugged um do we want to say? I think those are
1: well. If you say the name of something, then we can't do it. Yeah. So if well, you're I was on gonna the say fence,
0: no. I want to say no. Quiet on the Western Front is that didn't no. That you can do that even though it's
1: a shitty one to do. That's what I'll say. Don't do that one because it's dumb. You don't like all quiet on the Western Front? No, I think it's a great book, but for the topic, it's not good.
0: Um, trying to think of other ones because Uncle Tom's Cabin was the first one that came into my mind do we want to say no um, I'm trying to think of more American history stuff I can't think you of any right. Uh, I'll say this try to keep it
1: light on the enlightenment you know like there's so many things that you could pick from the enlightenment I'm not you, telling yeah. you not to do that because Candide Rousseau. might be interesting yeah but like don't just do like lock and Hobbes and shit you know what i mean like leviathan or something really easy mm-hmm. well
0: know? i i would say i would say stay st- st- i would say we should stay away from the enlightenment totally because a lot of that like dances on this line of fiction and non-fiction uh okay. so i say we just stay away from the enlightenment like entirely no
1: treatises
0: No, because like, no, I I think I think that's that's because that's it's it's one of those things where it's just like, hey, look at me. I'm poking fun at something or and it's like it's this is really happening, but it's going to make it in the guise of fiction. And I think we should definitely move more towards like actual fiction. You
1: know what I mean? Okay, I still think that some philosophy can be on the table if it's framed in like a narrative okay so like uh, you know Siddhartha if you wanted. I mean I just said it so you can't do it put yeah. stuff along those lines
0: I feel um. ya I feel you there okay cool yeah and this is something where we'll just we'll just run uh, ideas by each other throughout the next next week or so and uh, we'll be able to kind of judge it based on that
1: okay so cool. literary works that influence movements Um Yeah, I like that. So check that out. Check that out next time on Bad History.
0: (laughs) Whatever that (laughs) episode comes up. (laughs) So before we go, a few things. First of all, a few housekeeping things. I want to say thank you guys for being so understanding about the fact that we're going for two weeks. Um, I've gotten lots of positive feedback from people saying, you know, like you guys understand and all that good stuff and that's really really awesome to hear and it really is just kind of what works out best for us uh because we literally don't have the time to do this every week and to find a time that works for both of us um so so thank you guys for understanding and for your for supporting us on that and all that stuff uh i think that going to two two times a week the episodes are going to be you know really really good instead of kind of just like super mediocre or even shitty episodes once a week uh which is what they think they would go to I mean, uh, it might still be shitty episodes, but well, you think everything on this show less is shitty, so shitty, you know? yeah. Um, but also, uh, I'm gonna keep trying to figure out the off week thing that I was talking about with doing like the lectures, and I've been thinking a lot about it and trying to think how I want it to look, and uh, I'm still trying to figure out if I want it to be a whole separate podcast and just do it on the off weeks of this, so it would be every two weeks with. Bad History being one week and the other show being on another week. Uh, realistically, that probably makes the most sense, um, but I'm going to keep kind of workshopping it, and that would take a little bit more time to get off the ground than if I just threw, threw this on Bad History. But, uh, uh, but I'm trying to figure that out. I think it's going to be kind of bigger themes. The way I think I'm going to do it is I'm going to take a bigger theme and break it down into several parts and really try to deconstruct it and look at how all these different things led to this grander theme. Um, and then relate it back to why we care about this kind of thing. Um, and it will be more lecture style, but it will still be fun and I'll make fart jokes and all that stuff. And, Sweet. uh, yeah, so I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, I'll probably post like a thing about it, asking for uh, advice on what you guys think you wanted to hear. Uh, and I'll keep everybody posted on that. Um, and yeah, so next week is going to be a uh, literature that sparked, uh, mass movements. Uh, if you want to hear more of our stuff, past episodes, you can check us out on iTunes, uh, TuneIn Radio, on Google Play Music. Uh, Bad History, History Podcast dot is our website. Uh, Facebook, Bad History, Bad History Podcast, Twitter, Bad History Cast, Email, Bad History Podcast at gmail All that good stuff. Oh, leave, leave us a rating and review on iTunes if uh, you fancy. If you fancy doing that. All right, you want to end the show? Oh, yeah. Wait, we don't have <laughs> any more things? We don't have nah, any more things? No, nah, that's it, dude. I, I've, I flew through it, man. I got a rhythm now.
1: All right, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of Bad History. We will be at you in two weeks. My name is Dave. My name's Steven. So, happy history and good scrolls.
0: Adios.